Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan. In August, we had a speaker, Thomas Cowan, who told us about uh, the various health effects associated with vaccines. He commented that we need such diseases as German measles and chickenpox so that our immunity function can function properly. He also mentioned that some of these diseases are protective against other diseases in the future. Kind of interesting. Another thing I find interesting is the vaccine industry is going to be esti- it's estimated $20 billion a year in 2020. But yet, did you know, as we discussed last time, that uh, vaccine makers have actually been indemnified, that they don't have to pay for any possible damage, and that the U.S. government, you know, they've handed that pleasure to us, the U.S. taxpayers, we've already paid $3.6 billion for this. I think there's a recent hearing of uh, award of $100 million as well. So anyway, with us today, I'm honored to have J.B. Hanley, who's wrote a very interesting and thorough book about uh, vaccines and the autism epidemic. J.B. Hanley is the co-founder and chairman of Generation Rescue a nonprofit organization focused on helping children recover from autism that was inspired by the journey of his son, Jameson, who was diagnosed with autism in 2004. He's also the co-producer of the documentary film Autism Yesterday and the co-founder of the Age of Autism blog. Hanley co-founded Swander Pace Capital, a middle market private equity firm with more than $1.5 million under management. That where he served as a managing director for two decades. He's an honors graduate of Stanford University, lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife and his three children. So, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, well, so why don't you tell us what started you on this journey which led to you writing this book? Yeah, my, my wife and I, um, we, were, we were actually living in Northern California, our second son was born, uh, was developing normally, and started to experience f- physical and medical problems after each vaccine appointment. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Um, at two months of age, my son got six separate vaccines in about 10 minutes at a pediatric appointment, which, by the way, is very standard for any, any American child um, today in terms of trying to comply with the CDC schedule. And he developed immediately, as in by the next morning, um, eczema over a large portion of his body. Um, His belly became uh, distended, and his sleep patterns became super irregular, meaning that he couldn't sleep for more than about 10 minutes at a time, um, which, as you can imagine, put our family under um, extreme strain. Unfortunately, at that time in history, this is, we're talking now 2002, uh, my wife and I were completely oblivious to um, what these how these physical problems might be interrelated with the vaccinations he was getting, and our pediatricians were not in uh, in any mood or position to tell us that there might be a possible connection, and so we allowed our son to continue to get vaccinated. And um, 
his development continued, but his physical problems also continued. And just after he turned a year old, things started to also change for him neurologically. Um, he lost a lot of the skills he gained. He lost a lot of his words. Um, he started having unusual behaviors. And needless to say, we became extremely concerned. And over the next year, we started to learn more and more. And by the time he was two, he was diagnosed with autism. And we became convinced that um, the vaccines had been the primary trigger for the slide that we'd seen, not only the neurological slide, but the physical slide as well. And so our, you know, our, our journey was um, two very mainstream Stanford grads living a very mainstream life, going to a mainstream pediatrician, being um, knocked upside the head by, by the, the horror of what had happened to our son. And then once we took the blinders off, we sort of fell down this rabbit hole into this entire world of parents, physicians, and scientists who were just starting to share this information widely. And, um, you know, I write about in the book one of the most uh, sort of incredibly ironic experiences for my wife and I. Here we are, we're, li- we're living in the East Bay of Northern California in a town called Lafayette. Our pediatrician is a local pediatrician. Our son gets diagnosed at um, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, which is arguably one of the most preeminent medical institutions in the country. Um, and yet, down the road in Pleasanton, not 30 miles from UCSF, is a, um, a doctor known as a Dan doctor to feed autism now, and we've got UCSF telling us that our son will be permanently institutionalized. He'll never speak. And that all the things we're hearing about diet and biomedical intervention are, are parental placebos. And yet we have a doctor in Pleasanton telling us that, yep, it's the vaccines that cause it. If you treat the child for vaccine injury, they recover. Um, and, you know, I've already seen patients recover. And I, we're sitting there in the middle of these two sources of advice, still trying to make up our own minds, but mystified by how different two physicians can be in, in the same town, if you will, giving parents such different advice. And so that is what triggered our journey. Um, you know, that was 2004 when our son was diagnosed. So that's now 14 years ago. Um, in between that time, we've, we've tried to do what we can to advocate that recovery from autism is absolutely real and possible for many children. And at the same time, do what we can to educate families about uh, what we believe is going on in terms of the primary trigger for the autism epidemic. Wow. Yes, we've had Catherine Reed um, on the show. Uh, she has a website on Blind My Mind, and she had a child. He, she has a child who had very severe autism symptoms to the fact that the child couldn't even talk. So she is a, a PhD biochemist. <clears throat> we uh, looked at different things and found that removing glutamate from her child's diet, the child returned totally to normal. It was mainstream, with and she's the most social. Person, I mean, I've actually written an article on autism, and to me, it seems to be the final common pathway of everything that goes wrong. So, when you try to unravel this to help these children, it's going to be different for each child. And you know, if you approach certain aspects of it, I do think they can get better. So, it's so anyway, I agree with you that uh, they can improve. So, what have you noticed with your child or the other uh, people's children who have this condition? Well, I, I think you, you just highlighted something that's, that's really important to drill down on. You talked about um, glutamate, and glutamate is 
present in a lot of different foods. Um, it happens to be particularly pre- present in gluten and dairy. And if I were to tell you about a single intervention that I've heard from the most parents had a dramatic and immediate improvement in their children, um, it would be the removal of those two foods, right? And I think that the reason the removal of those two foods um, can have such a dramatic impact is because of the glutamate, right? Too much glutamate can create brain fog, it can create um, confusion, um, and it can create inflammation, all of which um, cause neurological problems. And I can't tell you how many parents I've heard talk about how the eye contact in their child returned, how the gut um, dysbiosis resolved or improved um, from that single dietary intervention alone. Um, you know, I've, there, are, there are hundreds of doctors across the country who treat children with autism medically to try to resolve their symptoms, which in many cases resolves their neurological problems. And whenever I run into these doctors, I'll privately ask them, okay, you know, how many... How many kids in your practice have recovered, recovered, as in no longer have the diagnosis, they're back in normal school, you know, they have the chance to go to college, they're likely to live a normal life. And and what I typically hear from each doctor is, you know, dozens that have made it that far and then many, many more that have shown improvement. Um, My son is in the many more that have shown improvement camp. Um, And so we continue, he's 15 right now, we continue to... Um, seek out doctors and find ways to help him improve. But I'll, I'll tell you a really quick story that was one of the more miraculous experiences that we had. Uh, and, I, and what you said is a really important point. Um, every child is different. Um, not every intervention works for every child. Not every child needs the same interventions. And you've got to have a physician alongside you who, who really understands this problem and test your child appropriately to determine what, what might be best for them. Um, B12 is a very important uh, vitamin for a lot of these children. B12 is strongly associated with speech, and B12 is very hard to get into the body through an oral route. And so there's, there's two routes of B12 that people in the autism community use. There's these small um, shot, shots, actually, that they give the child subcutaneously, and then there's a nasal B12 that you literally squirt up the nose. And um, B12 was something that our physician thought for my son would be beneficial to him. When he was about three years old, we got some nasal B12 through a compounding pharmacy, and we gave him his first dose of nasal B12. Um, at the time, he was nonverbal, and within 24 hours, he had 100 words and caused our speech therapists and teachers and everybody else to um, absolutely be in a state of shock because the change was so dramatic and so abrupt. And I, I only share that story to say that... Um, there are sometimes dramatic changes that these children can experience. And if I hadn't been there for those 24 hours to watch my, my son go from zero words to 100 words, um, I probably wouldn't have believed it myself. And we feel very lucky that our son is, is verbal today um, because roughly half of children with autism do not have words. Um, and, and we really believe that that nasal B12 back when he was three was a primary trigger to allow the words to return. So it sounds like you need to find somebody that's going to be working with you and uh, unraveling this puzzle. What's interesting to me, it seems analogous to Alzheimer's, which is, you know, disease on the other end of our lives, which according to Dale Bredesen, you can reverse the cognitive symptoms, but it's multifactorial. You just have to find the primary factors and unravel them. And interesting enough, he defines one category 
of autism as related to toxins. So I imagine toxins can be a contributor to autism as well. Would that be true? It would, and it's it's fascinating that you bring up Alzheimer's. Um, an entire chapter of my book is dedicated to the emerging science about why exactly a vaccine can cause autism. And um, all of this science has come up in the last seven or eight years, which by scientific standards is very, very recent. And virtually all of it has happened on foreign shores, meaning that American scientists have not been driving it. And what, what that science has demonstrated is that the primary adjuvant used in vaccines, and I'll explain that in a moment, um, which is aluminum hydroxide, um, appears to be an autism trigger. So vaccines that use killed viruses to try to confer temporary immunity they need something to hyperstimulate the immune system, right? To awake the immune system to the fact that there's something there to, that it needs to react to. Um, aluminum is used to hyperstimulate the immune system. The reason that the aluminum used in vaccines can do that is because it's not ionic aluminum, it's nanoparticulate aluminum. And it's very, very antagonistic to our immune system because our immune system doesn't recognize it at all. And so hyperstimulation takes place when the aluminum is in, in injected intramuscularly into the body. The problem is the immune system response to the aluminum entering the body is to send macrophages, which are sort of the garbage men of our immune system, to grab this foreign substance. And the macrophage is a transport mechanism to bring the aluminum to the brain. And so this, this process of the aluminum being injected, the macrophage grabbing it, and then the transport mechanism of taking it to the brain have now all been documented scientifically and biologically. And I talk about this in great detail in my book. And what we've learned is that a aluminum triggers what we call an immune activation event in the brain. When you have an immune activation event during vulnerable stages of brain development, you can get autism. In fact, that's part of what the science has shown us is that immune activation events lead to autism. Um, there's a professor named Chris Exley uh, out of the United Kingdom. Chris Exley is the preeminent neurotoxicologist in the world who specializes in aluminum. He's the first one who showed clearly that people with Alzheimer's have extremely high levels of aluminum in their brain. Um, and he did the first study that was only published in November of 2017, where for the first time they looked at the brains of people with autism who had died of, of other causes. And what he found was not only shockingly high levels of aluminum in their brain, but it was the location of the aluminum, the aluminum in their brain that was very, very distinct. The aluminum was largely encased in these macrophages, and he described a Trojan horse mechanism whereby the aluminum had been brought to the brain um, and had come from other sources. It was the first sort of damning biological evidence within the brains of, of people who actually have an autism diagnosis to show us that this idea that the aluminum could be the primary trigger um, holds tremendous weight. So the Alzheimer's autism connection might be an age-driven connection, meaning that because your brain has largely developed by the time you're, um, you know, three or four years old, it's much harder to regress into autism at that point. But as you age, if that aluminum continues to accumulate, it's plausible that it becomes the, the cause or the trigger for Alzheimer's. Well, just speaking about science, as I recall from reading your book, the people who really are pro-vaccines, and they cite the herd theory, etc., they mark this when they when they 
connection or possible connection with autism is brought up, they cite a study that was inconclusive that didn't have enough data to assess the problem of autism versus vaccines. Is that the only science that the pro-vaxxers have? Great question. And um, first things first, there are, there are two forms of science that are involved in the autism vaccine debate. There's epidemiology, the study of large numbers and records and that kind of thing. And there's biological science, right? So the, uh, what I was just talking to you about in terms of establishing the route for aluminum to get to the brain and trigger an immune activation event, that's biological science where they are literally using animal models to inject aluminum and then they sacrifice the animal and they look at the brain and they, they measure all these different um, uh, measurements and determine what's happened. That biological science is very, very damning of the vaccine autism connection. Epidemiology, the study of large numbers, is exclusively what the CDC has relied upon, the Centers for Disease Control, um, to claim that vaccines do not cause autism. Um, I have an entire chapter in my book about this false epidemiology because the the biggest issue with the epidemiology is that it, it never actually tries to answer the question that we want answered, which is, you know, does a fully vaccinated child have a much higher rate of autism than a fully unvaccinated child? And what they're in, instead doing is um, these micro studies of things like, does a child who received 150 micrograms of mercury through their shots have a higher or lower rate of autism than a child who received 75 micrograms of mercury through their shots? They're looking at vaccinated children and comparing them to other vaccinated children, declaring there's no difference in, in autism rates, and therefore saying vaccines don't cause autism. It's, it's an abs- absurd an illogical set of conclusions. Um, it's very frustrating because I have read all the science and understand this to see the headlines that are developed. Um, but it's a PR effort, not a science effort to confuse the public and make people feel that the science has been done when in fact the questions have never been properly asked. That sounds like a familiar pattern. I remember the tobacco industry and, you know, these in- industry henchmen that their job is to confuse and create doubt so the public uh, doesn't uh, gravitate to the side that might be the right side. The, the tobacco analogy is, is a perfect one on so many levels. Um, first of all, Hill and Knowlton is a PR firm that actually ran the Tobacco Science Research Institute, which was a tobacco industry-funded research group that put out a lot of that science that created and sowed doubt. Hill & Knowlton is a primary PR firm working for the pharmaceutical industry um, on this particular topic. The other thing that's true about tobacco was that a mouse study in 1953 um, really pushed the first domino in people believing that cigarettes were causing lung cancer. They, they painted these mice with tobacco tar, and a majority of them developed cancer. And so, unlike the epidemiology that the tobacco industry had been producing, the biological science was damning. It was hard evidence of a relationship between, you know, tobacco tar and cancer. And it began the process of um, tobacco companies being implicated for the epidemic of lung cancer. Now, unfortunately, it took 40 years. It took 40 years of the tobacco industry sowing doubt, funding politicians, creating false science um, before a reckoning finally took place. And part of my hope in writing this book is to accelerate that time frame, right? We see the same exact behaviors taking place. We see the same courageous scientists emerging, telling the truth, 
we see hundreds of thousands of parents all with the exact same story about regression after vaccine appointments. And hopefully this book will serve to move people from standing on the sidelines or being on the fence to realizing um, how big this problem is how clear the facts are. And I think one of the things that will shock somebody who's not close to this issue, how many mainstream doctors and scientists agree with what the parents are saying. Their points of view are generally muted and harder to find than the points of view of the CDC and the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, who have great PR firms and who are, who are all singing the same tune. But the number of credible doctors and scientists is growing every day. And I think it's their voices and their point of view that will finally allow this topic to reach sort of a consensus and, and hopefully do the right thing for kids. You mentioned anecdotal uh, evidence of a connection between autism and vaccines. Tell me about the epidemiology as well as the biological studies that are pointing in that direction. Right. So the, the, what's interesting is there actually is um, epidemiology that looks at vaccinated versus unvaccinated children. It was done out of Jackson State University. It was published in 2017. And what it showed was that children who are vaccinated had um, dramatically higher rates of neurodevelopmental outcomes, meaning things like autism and ADHD, et cetera, and that those children also had much higher rates of chronic illnesses like asthma and other things. This is all very consistent with what we've heard from parents. And so the the Jackson State vaccinated versus unvaccinated epidemiology was literally the first time that um, any uh, researchers had ever truly compared fully vaccinated children to fully unvaccinated children. If you combine that with the aluminum and immune activation event science that I've talked about, um, which has really come out of three areas. It's come from Canada, from a researcher named Chris Shaw. It's come out of England from a researcher named Chris Exley. And it's come out of the University of Paris from a researcher named Romain Girardi. Um, Those three scientists have established the clear pattern between injected aluminum immune activation events, and then the neurological outcome of autism. It's pretty irrefutable biological science for anybody willing to read. And um, what what would shock you and would probably shock most like American listeners, Christopher Shaw, Romain Girardi, um, and Chris Exley, they felt so strongly about the outcome of their biological research. They each wrote a letter to our public health service, namely the Department of Health and Human Services, the CDC and the FDA, telling them they had grave concerns about the use of aluminum in vaccines and telling them that they they disagreed strongly with the words on the CDC's website saying that vaccines don't cause autism. Extraordinary that three highly pedigreed scientists from other countries would actually write letters to our public health service. Um, I talk about this at length in my book, and unfortunately no Americans know that ever happened, but the letters are in there, the details are in there, and it's a, it's a pretty amazing time when um, prominent scientists are willing to be that bold and that loud in their assertions that vaccines are indeed causing autism. Well, I was told by a prominent uh, scientist at an extremely prominent uh, uh, educational institution, and she just commented uh, a couple of lines on um, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s book, and apparently that position, she no longer works there. So that sounds like like there are repercussions for coming out and speaking out. The the repercussions are massive and unbelievable behind 
unfortunately, the majority of medical research in the United States is the pharmaceutical industry. And so their, their weight and their influence is broad and deep. And um, any time a scientist um, comes out in any way to draw a connection between vaccines and autism, they are, they are condemned and annihilated. And I, I think it brings up a, a complex topic, which is how do we get past this, right? The fear out there is palpable. Um, I, I watched from behind the scenes as that vaccinated versus unvaccinated study was shared with medical journal after medical journal after medical journal before it was finally published. And it wasn't that there was anything wrong with the science. It wasn't that there was anything wrong with the methodology. It was the topic that scared away all the journals. And I think the only way you get past um, this extreme censorship is that a, a group of scientists who all understand and believe and have the published science to support it, they need to speak as a group. They need to speak as a large voice. They need to get as many people onto their platform as possible. They need to make a joint statement. They need to get out there with scale and hang on to each other. It's much harder to refute the words of a large, pedigreed, well-published, thoughtful group. And I think that will be something that can help speed up the process of, of ending what I believe is a senseless epidemic of neurological injury. I, I think we are at a near tipping point. I think there's enough people that exist. And the trick is just to get them to all come together and speak as one. Because when you come out one by one, you get picked off one by one. Yeah, I mean, you have one chapter you focus on no evidence, no responsibility. Yeah. So perhaps that's a factor. It, it, it is. It is. There are, I, I think that we, we learned from the tobacco playbook that um, sowing doubt allows good people to remain neutral, right? I, I'll give you an extreme example, which many people have a hard time believing, but that is actually a, a real issue in the autism community. Um, there are many corners of the mainstream autism community who remain um, neutral on whether the rise in the number of children with autism is a real rise or is simply a product of better diagnosis, expanded criteria, et cetera. They equivocate on whether we even have an autism epidemic. If you're uh. willing to sit on the fence on whether or not there's actually more children with autism, you don't have to spend any time um, looking at causation. And if you go on the CDC website, the AAP website, and even the Autism Speaks website, you will not find clear, definitive information about whether or not the autism epidemic is a real rise. This, despite the fact that I actually spent an entire chapter on this because we call this, this epidemic denialism is actually a very real and problematic thing. The science is so clear and so robust that we have a real change. And any teacher, <laughs> any pediatrician, Anyone who is any coach, anyone who has worked with children for 30 years would tell you that there is something dramatically different and wrong with children today. Um, and yet that continues. And the reason it continues is because the other side has done a great job of creating doubt and creating an opening for otherwise good people to remain neutral. And again, the only way to force that issue and to move people along is for enough pedigreed scientists to all stand up simultaneously and say the same thing. And that thing is, the autism epidemic is real. Vaccines are a primary trigger. 
the evidence is in, and we now need to do something to try to prevent future generations from one in 36 children having autism, which is what we're dealing with today. One out of 36 folks, when it used to be one out of 2,500, one out of 10,000. Well, if it's not an epidemic, it sure is an exploding mushroom of explosion of cases. Now, what's interesting to me is we've, it seems a similar process going on. I mean, we've talked about EMF and it's the same approach uh, that, you know, it can create confusion and doubt. We've talked about GMO itself as well as the glyphosate, each one of them independently. The whole process is to create doubt and confusion and the people that speak out seem to have a very hard time with hard consequences. It seems interesting. And on the other hand, another pattern I see, for example, the head of CDC, Julie Gerbingdon, that she went to from the government to head Merck's vaccine division. It seems to be a revolving door between the government and uh, lobbyists and corporations. There- there, there is indeed. I mean, the, the, the plum job for any CDC employee on the other side is working within pharma. Uh, in fact, um, just a, a quick sidebar, yes, Julie Gerberding did leave the CDC to head Merck's vaccine division. Um, what's less well known is that the original study the CDC did, um, which they claimed proved that vaccines didn't cause autism, which was nothing more than a study of children who'd gotten a lot of mercury in their shots versus children who'd gotten a little less mercury in their shots. The author of that study, Thomas Verstraten, um, in the midst of publication of the study, left to join GlaxoSmithKline in Belgium. Um, So he was hired away in the middle of the publication of that study, um, partly because he had a different opinion about the study's outcome than some of his colleagues. And so the the corruption and collusion at CDC is pretty well documented and pretty extreme. Um, And that's that's obviously uh, part of the problem. You know, I wanted to talk for a second about about solutions and you know what do we actually do about this epidemic what, what epidemic what do we what do we as responsible parents and citizens try to actually do to make a change and I, I want to lo- give a little context to what I mean um, in the in the mid 1980s before the um, indemnification of vaccine makers that you spoke about early in the show um, in the mid 1980s there were only three licensed vaccines for children uh, DTP MMR and polio, and the vaccination rates for children in 1985 were 60% or less for those three vaccines. Um, You fast forward to today, there are 11 licensed vaccines for children. Um, uh, By the time a child is five, they will have gotten 38 separate injections for those 11 vaccines, and the vaccination rates in the United States are now um, north of 90%. And so the question is, what do you do about the vaccine program if it's causing autism to try to strike some balance between um, management of infectious disease and autism? And I I go through a um, pretty extensive proposal for how we can make changes to the vaccine program um, that will allow us to be moderate and responsible, but at the same time acknowledge that we are causing neurological damage in far too many children. And the, the first, and I would argue most important thing that we can do is that we can screen for vulnerable children before they get any vaccines. Um, we know that there are genetic mutations. We know that there are um, family markers of autoimmunity. And we know that there are actual physical symptoms that the child's 
children are exhibiting that would create red flags for them to receive any vaccines. If you can screen children in advance of vaccination who are at high risk for developing autism, you can reduce the autism rate through that method alone. And looking back retrospectively, my son never should have gotten a single vaccine. He had every marker for risk, whether it was um, maternal history of autoimmunity or um, a, a genetic mutation we call the MTHFR mutation or exhibiting um, physical symptoms like um, recurrent ear infections and distended belly and um, not being able to sleep. He was a red flag case of a child who should have never been vaccinated. And so um, screening alone could have a dramatic reduction in the number of children who develop autism. Um, the next thing is that I believe the, the vaccination schedule in the United States needs to be reduced through two different means. Number one, we, we simply have we now today give too many vaccines. There are vaccines like um, hepatitis B, hepatitis A, rotavirus, uh, influenza, um, and varicella, which is chickenpox, which many other countries do not give their children, and which if other first world countries are not giving a vaccine, that should, that should raise a giant question mark um, of its importance. So there's a net reduction in, in vaccinations given to children that I think we can do. The other thing we can do um, there's a very simple blood test called a titer test. And a titer test shows whether or not a vaccine has actually created an antibody response in your system. Um, after the first vaccination, uh, 90 to 95% of children develop titers for that vaccine, and yet we often give the vaccine two, three, or four more times simply to account for the, the small minority of children who don't take on the first shot. A titer test can show you whether or not um, a vaccine has taken. And so if you substitute uh, titer tests for boosters, you can also have a dramatic reduction in the number of vaccines given to children. And so I think we need to... The, the problem is, until we acknowledge that vaccines are triggering autism, we can't have a mainstream conversation about screening tools or reduction in vaccines. Um, and that's what sort of created the stalemate we're currently in. Um, but if we are able to past that divide, we can actually start to have a productive dialogue about real ways of reducing the load of vaccines given to children and real screening for children who are at extreme risk. Yeah, one of the things you pointed out is one risk factor is having a mitochondrial dysfunction. And according to my research, that is a part of autism for many of the children. But if some children opted out of the vaccine, would that affect the herd immunity and, you know, the argument that you need so many children vaccinated, uh, how would you respond to their concerns? Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate. Herd immunity is um, more of a marketing message than a reality. And let me explain what I mean. First of all, I, I gave you some historical data on vaccination rates. So if we go back to 1985 and if we consider that there were only three vaccines given, polio, MMR, and DTAP, or DTP rather, those three vaccinations in 1985 were only at about a 60% vaccination rate. So you can look at the vaccination rates um, and you can chart how massive we had, you know, whether or not we had epidemics of any of those illnesses, and we didn't. So that's the first thing. We have historical evidence that this 90 or 95% threshold that people talk about today, the data simply doesn't support that. The, the next and most glaring problem with the kind of herd immunity argument is adults. Um, it's well documented that, that most adults are 
way, way, way behind on their vaccinations. In fact, many older adults past the age of about 40 didn't get many of the vaccines we give today to children because they didn't even exist. Um, I haven't personally gotten a, a vaccine since 1991, the year I got out of college, and vaccines wane over time. So most adults are walking around effectively unvaccinated because they haven't gotten a vaccine in decades. Vaccines wane with time. Now you, now you go, you look at some of the arguments that um, the pro-vaccine people make about herd immunity, but you take any school, any school's population is somewhere between 20 and 40% adults. You have teachers, you have administrators, you have custodians, you have groundskeepers, and you have parental volunteers going in and out of that school every day. Not only is their vaccination status unknown, but it's highly likely that they are under-vaccinated or unvaccinated by any reasonable standard, and yet where are the epidemics? Also, these children leave school, they go to the mall, they interact with adults, and once again, the adult vaccination rates play a huge role in the analysis, and when you include that, you realize that the notion of herd immunity is a false notion, meaning we've never achieved it through vaccines and, and likely never will unless you make vaccinations for adults mandatory. And so it's, it's not a... It's not a reason to worry, if you will, about vaccination status. Um, I think vaccines are something that every parent should have the right to use if they want to, but vaccines are also something that every parent should have the right to not use if they want to. And I think reducing the recommended schedule and, and really disabusing the, the lie of vaccine-based herd immunity, since we've never achieved it, um, is really important. And I'd say that I'd say, I wrote a whole article on my blog, which is jbhanleyblog.com, about herd immunity and how it really is a, um, a marketing message of big pharma. This is the topic that probably triggers more cognitive dissonance in people than any other when I raise it with them. They ultimately get there through the logic of understanding um, the adult factor in the whole equation, but it really does catch people off guard. They have been so indoctrinated to believe that herd immunity is critical to all of us staying alive that when you present them with the logic and the details of the adult portion or the history going back to the mid-80s where the vaccination rates were dramatically lower and where we only gave three vaccines versus 11, um, it's, it's pretty hard uh, data and logic to to argue against, but I, I have watched people struggle to believe it until they finally accept that, that the data can't be refuted. There's never been vaccine-based herd immunity. But more than that, I mean, you come up with some very interesting examples in your book. For example, people might have thought polio was a wonder vaccine, but then some people postulate that the polio, the DDT that was very prevalent at that time, gets into our anterior horns, which might, you know, escort the virus into our nervous system, and when DDT declined, oh, it's about the same time that the polio epidemic declined. But you mentioned yeah, let's studies Let's talk like, about this. Let, let's, yeah. let, let's talk okay. about polio for a moment. The reason I want to is because polio, um, more than any other vaccine, conjures up extremely emotional reactions in people, um, and they, they, they point to the history, and they've been convinced that the vaccine and the vaccine alone is the reason we don't have a polio <clears throat> epidemic today. Um, <clears throat> the question that nobody ever asks, and the one that you just raised, um, is why all of a sudden was there this massive outbreak? And polio is a relatively benign virus that hangs out in the stomach. Poliomyelitis 
is the polio we all fear. Poliomyelitis, which gets into the nervous system, is extremely dangerous and is something that no parent would want their child to have. And that's the thing that we all fear. Um, even at the height of the um, polio epidemic in the late 40s and early 50s, poliomyelitis only happened to about one in 100 people who carried the polio virus. But nonetheless, it was extremely serious. The question is, why, why did a relatively benign stomach virus jump into the nervous system. There has to be an escort. Just like there is with meningitis in the, in the spine, there has to be an escort. And, and what happened at that moment in history that changed so dramatically, DDT is the most obvious um, and reasonable hypothesis because of what it does in terms of um, the anterior horn. And um, it, it basically creates an opening, right? It it creates an opening for the virus to jump into the nervous system. Um, the other very powerful hypothesis is, is one of um, what we call provocation. Provocation is a fancy way of saying that you, in some way, either through a needle or through a surgical instrument, you create some kind of puncture wound in the body that allows the polio virus to jump into the nervous system. The two most obvious routes of provocation, um, there were um, tonsillectomies done at very high rates back in that time period, meaning that children were sort of had their tonsils taken out proactively before they had any sort of reaction. Um, that would have been a provocation. The other provocation is vaccination. And so um, one of the things they see in third world countries where they vaccinate for polio is that when they give a massive number of vaccines, they they risk provocating poliomyelitis. And there's some excellent research done out of Cambridge University talking about polio provocation and how real it is as a way to get polio. And so it's important to appreciate that we may well have created a man-made epidemic of poliomyelitis and that that might have been the reason why it all happened. Um, whether the vaccine alone was the reason the epidemic stopped is up for debate. Um, DDT was removed from the from use in the U.S., and that also maps to the decline in polio. And so it, it, it at least creates a fair argument about whether or not revisionist historians have given vaccines all the credit. Um, at, at the same time, I want to be clear about something. The polio vaccine um, isn't actually one of the vaccines that I hear from parents about seeing a massive regression after that vaccine was given. Polio vaccine doesn't include aluminum. And so on the revised vaccination schedule um, that I give, uh, polio vaccine is still there. Uh, now, I don't heartily recommend the polio vaccine. We haven't had a case of polio in the United States since 1979. And so I think parents need to keep all these vaccines in proper context. But it is on the list of vaccines that I include um, on a reduced schedule. Because for many parents, it's, it's simply an emotional and historical experience that they can't get past. And that's fine. I think vaccines should be a choice for any parent who says, under no circumstance am I willing to risk my child having polio. I believe this polio vaccine will prevent that. I'm getting the vaccine. Great. You did your research. You understand um, some of the history. You understand we haven't had a case since 1979. You still want to give your child the polio vaccine. It doesn't contain aluminum. You know, I, I'm not going to stand in the way of that. And I think that kind of freedom of choice on any vaccine needs to be brought back into the conversation much more versus the near mandatory um, approach that we have between nurses and doctors in the media today. Well, you have some other interesting tidbits that I'd like to share with the audience that at Harvard, there was a mumps outbreak and all the people who were infected, they had all been vaccinated. You also talked about the DTP vaccine in, that um, in uh, Guinea-Bissau, there was a five 
fold increase in mortality for those that were vaccinated. Uh, you talked about dengue fever vaccine. The Philippines suspended mass immunization campaign due to what some of the things they've seen. Gardasil has come up with a lot of problems uh, you mentioned. And the flu vaccine, apparently the Canadians are having some challenges with it as well. Tell us a little bit about these incidences. Yeah, there are, um, there are some deeply disturbing data sets out there about the downside to vaccination that I don't think a lot of American parents are well aware of. Um, I think the Guinea-Bissau study is perhaps the most, most earth-shattering study that I've ever seen. And let me try to put that in context. Um, I just wrote an article um, for my blog, jbhenleyblog.com, and I asked a simple question, did vaccines save humanity? And the reason I ask that question is because we're often told that they did. We're often told that if we didn't have vaccinations, hundreds of millions of people would be dead, and, and, and you hear all this extreme sort of conversation about that. Um, public health officials know better. Uh, between 1900 and today, uh, mortality rates in the United States have gone down by 54%. That's a dramatic number um, that basically means that we live much longer than we did in 1900. But public health officials estimate that vaccines played the role of somewhere between 1% and 3.5% of that decrease in mortality, and that sanitation, refrigeration, less crowded living conditions, and nutrition drove the majority of the, the decline in mortality. Many of the diseases that we vaccinated against had experienced dramatic declines well before the vaccine was introduced. And so did vaccines play a role? The answer is yes, they did. And can you put that role in any kind of data context? Yes, you can. It's between one and three and a half percent of the total decline in mortality. I use that as a backstory for um, what Dr. Peter A.A.B. discovered in Guinea-Bissau. Basically, Guinea-Bissau, um, which is an African country, allowed for the first time a vaccinated, unvaccinated study to take place of the DTP vaccine. Um, Dr. A.A.B. was able to um, separate children who'd gotten the DTP vaccine and children who had not. And what he found was that children who had received um, the DTP vaccine uh, were five times more likely to die than children who had not received it. This study um, is extraordinarily problematic for the global vaccine industry. It's, it's an available study. Anybody could find it. Um, it hasn't gotten any press in the U.S. It was only published in 2017. Um, but it calls into question the entire um, vaccination programs in Africa. And you have to ask yourself, okay, so you obviously give that DTP vaccine to children in Africa thinking you're going to save lives. So if, in fact, the opposite happens, meaning more children die than survive once they get the vaccine, the question is, where is the, why is the gap happening? Why is there such a dramatic gap between what they expected to happen? Because they're obviously doing it thinking they're going to save children. And what actually happened, more children died. And there's this term in public health, which is an NSE, a nonspecific event. And what an NSE is, is something that happens from the vaccine besides the expected things to happen. So you expect a child to develop antibodies for diphtheria. You expect them to develop antibodies for tetanus. You expect them to develop antibodies antibodies for pertussis. But what DTP also does to a malnourished child living in, in poor living conditions is it, it makes their immune system more susceptible to other infections. And unfortunately, um, when you remember that vaccines only played a one to three and a half percent role in the decline in mortality in the United States, it's the other components of public health that are far more important. 
And in the wrong environment, a vaccine can do more harm than good. And that's what, what Dr. AAB's study shows. And it's deeply, deeply damning to the vaccination programs in third world countries. And so I hope that it gets more and more airtime and more and more study. Dr. AAB is actually a very pedigreed pro-vaccine epidemiologist who simply published the data and what the data showed. My understanding is he has been under enormous pressure ever since the release of that study. So that's one example of where we have real problems with with vaccines worldwide. Another one that you mentioned is in the Philippines where um, it's a huge scandal and you could easily Google, you know, Philippines and dengue fever vaccine and see it for yourself. But basically what they realized was that if a child had never had dengue fever and they received the dengue fever vaccine, then if they got dengue fever, their risk of dying went up dramatically. Okay, and so in a way, the dengue fever vaccine reduced their immune system's ability to fight dengue fever. This is basically doing the opposite of what the vaccine's supposed to do. And Sanofi, the manufacturer of this particular vaccine, had to withdraw the vaccine from the market, but not before 850,000 you know, Filipino children had been given the vaccine. And it's created a massive national scandal in the Philippines right now where the, the prime minister is under fire, the health minister is under fire, fingers are being pointed, and it's a, it's a front-page news deal sort of scandal over there and so it's something that you know parents can look into I think the 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 scandal of the Gardasil or the HPV vaccine is probably even more noteworthy for American listeners um HPV or Gardasil is the human papillomavirus vaccine. It's typically given to um, teenage girls and now is being recommended for boys as well. And what most Americans don't realize is that there is a worldwide scandal about this vaccine because of the very high rates of adverse events in otherwise healthy girls. Um, the scandal was so big in Japan that there's now effectively no vaccination rate for HPV anymore. You can Google Japan and HPV lawsuit and see that there's a class action lawsuit taking place, that the vaccination rates have declined to almost nothing. Um, in Ireland, it's nearly front page news um, weekly about the scandal of the HPV vaccine. There's a very loud um, parent group in Ireland called Regret, who um, are, is comprised of um, dozens of families of injured girls, many of whom are in wheelchairs. Um, in Colombia, there's a class action lawsuit for injured girls against Gardasil. Um, and what's come out and what is deeply disturbing is that the original um, trial data for HPV uh, did something statistically very sneaky and unethical. They had three categories of girls who they tested the HPV vaccine against. One category of girls got uh, the HPV vaccine. One category of girls only got the aluminum adjuvant. So they just gave them the adjuvant, but not the vaccine itself. And then one category of girls received a saline placebo. So a true placebo, if you will, from the vaccine. And so they, they took this, this, these girls were the trial for the vaccine. And so they vaccinated all the girls and then they assessed the adverse outcomes in these three groups. However, when they reported the data, they commingled the aluminum group and the saline group together as one group. And they were able to show that the injury rates were similar between the two groups. And the, so they said, basically, the saline placebo group or the non-vaccine group and the vaccine group had similar adverse outcomes. This vaccine is safe. Well, activists got their hands on the real data. And what it actually showed was that the aluminum group and the vaccine group had similar rates of adverse events. But the placebo group had dramatically lower rates of adverse events. And so 
the data itself is, uh, shows that there were actually dramatic differences. And this is just coming to light as we speak. There's a book coming out about it. There are lawsuits that will be filed. Um, and I would encourage any parent of a teenage boy or girl who is having the HPV vaccine recommended to them um, to do their own research, to look closely at this topic, um, to Google places like Japan and Colombia um, and Ireland and the Netherlands and other countries for the scandals that have happened in those countries and make sure they have all the information um, collected before they uh, consider that vaccine. Well, so, yeah, it's the, just utterly amazing to me that this it, is it going is on and, and we don't and know. I've, I've, you know, if you... You have to be a cynic um, about the vaccination program. You know, you mentioned the 20 billion number in terms of the size of the of the market for vaccines. Merck, Merck continues to be one of the more problematic actors in the um, vaccine industry. Merck, the same company that um, you know, when Viox was becoming problematic, their court documents emerged that Merck had recommended that doctors are sought out and destroyed who are saying anything negative about Viox. So Merck has a a really unfortunate history of sort of protecting their profits at all costs. Um, Gardasil is a Merck vaccine, and Gardasil is a primary driver of profits for Merck. If you listen to their quarterly conference calls, you'll hear all about Gardasil and its growth. And so the the pressure to protect that vaccine and to protect profits is very, very high. Um, but the data is emerging. It's real. There's a book coming out um, authored by Mary Holland, which I believe will be released in late September, all about the H- HPV vaccine cover-up. And I, I really, really encourage parents of teenagers um, and preteens, unfortunately, now, too, to really do their research about this vaccine. Well, what I, we only have two minutes left, but I really like that you've come up with a proposal, and I love the idea that you uh, exclude some of the more vulnerable children, those with mitochondrial disorders, those with adverse reactions to the vaccines, etc. So I like that. I mean, that... that that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Do you have any final points yeah, well, in mean, the last minute yeah, I, or so? I, I, think that's a great, I think that's a great place to end. We, we need to be responsible adults. We need to acknowledge the truth that there is an autism epidemic. We need to acknowledge the truth that many mainstream scientists and doctors all agree that vaccines are a primary trigger. We, need, we also need to put these numbers in some kind of context. You mentioned mitochondrial dysfunction. Mitochondrial dysfunction means that cellular energy levels are, are low. And we know with certainty that mitochondrial dysfunction is a huge red flag for getting vaccinated. That's a relatively simple blood test that any child could do. We have to get past fighting about whether or not vaccines can trigger autism, concede that they can, and then screen the vulnerable kids to allow them to avoid that fate. The, the data's there. The tests are there. The means are there. It's really a question of is the will there to get past the liars, the self-interests, the pharmaceutical industry and all their influence and pressure well, and just do the right thing for our kids. Well, we have 30 seconds left, so I'd like to recommend to the listener to go get J.B. J. Handley's book, How to End the Autism Epidemic. So go out and do your own research. Google the places suggested so you can help yourself, help others, you know, work with your physicians. And above all, be well. you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. Without the power.